All right, well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them to the book of Ecclesiastes and to chapter 10 of that book. And as you're doing that, I do want to say a couple of things. In spite of the uh, flood of mixed emotions that go through my heart, both uh, sorrow and joy, um, I want to say that I am so grateful and thankful to the Lord for the direction that this transition is taking. And I believe it is of him. And I think it'd be helpful for you to hear that from me. I, I really believe that God is in this and I'm so excited. I'm excited about the candidacy of Sam Parker. Um, I love, love, love that Sam loves, loves, loves the church. And I love that he loves and is submitted to the word of God. And that's something that I can say after knowing him for many years and seeing his walk up close and personal as a friend and as a fellow elder and as a, as a brother in Christ. So I am so thankful and I, I want to encourage you, if I can have one more pastoral shot at you, I want to encourage you as your pastor to pray for Sam and his family and pray for the church, just as John mentioned here, pray, pray every day for this transition. Pray that God would be moving in it and that his will would be done. And with that, let's go to our text, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Um, if you're new here and you're wondering, I, I didn't just decide to preach this this morning. This, and I'm saying that because uh, it might strike you as an interesting text, but we're working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. So here's what, the word of God says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone he, that he is a fool. If the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low place, in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who queries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen its edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what is to be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Let's pray. Oh, Father, be pleased in this place to magnify your name in our hearts. I pray that you would move so powerfully that we would be at once convicted and feel the weight of our sin 
and also turning to Christ with hope and with joy, looking to the gospel as our only hope and our only boast in this world. I pray that you would be pleased to be big in this place and I am happy to be small. May your word speak. May your spirit move. May your grace abound. Thank you for this church, for what you are doing here in this place, among us. Lord, we see your kindness at every turn. And Lord, I pray, I pray that you would show your kindness again this morning as we look to your word for hope and for life and for correction and for everything else we need from you today. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen. All right, you know what we do when we read Bible stories or we think about even corrections in the Bible is we often find ourselves resonating with the heroes or the good people in the story and not so much as the people who need correction. For example, when you think about the story of David and Goliath, you know, we, we tend to read ourselves into that story often. If you heard sermons on it, most preachers read you into it. But always as David and never as Goliath. You ever notice that? We're always thinking of ourselves as like, how would we respond if we were David? No one's ever thinking, how would I respond if I was Goliath? How would I respond if I was Saul? How would I respond if I was David's brother who scorned him or faithless Israel who was fearful? We always see ourselves as the one in in a positive way, the good guys. So if you have before you a passage that describes a fool and one that describes a wise man, how do you read yourself into that? It's tempting just to think, yeah, Solomon, He nails it here. You nail it here. There's there's a lot of fools out there. There's a lot of people who act the fool. I know many people this describes to a T. But let me just share with you candidly. It was difficult for me to read Ecclesiastes 10, 1 through 15, study it, read it carefully, and not feel like I am absolutely reading about myself. And I don't mean the few affirmations that are here for the wise man. It is as if Solomon led this with, this is about a bald guy with a beard who wears glasses and drinks Earl Grey tea in the morning. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point. I think we're doing this wrong if we read this and think, yeah, that perfectly describes that guy sitting over there. The helpfulness of this passage is the convicting nature of it. The way that God uses his word like a scalpel. That's what we need, right? And at least that's how I felt this week as I studied this, convicted. The Lord did a wonderful job in me this week demonstrating my need of his grace, even as I studied this passage, so much so that I was a little reluctant to come up here and preach this to you. But then I realized that that is itself the beauty of Ecclesiastes. This is not here simply so that I can identify other people in need of God's grace. The Bible is not here just so that you can see all the needs that other people have. Needs of wisdom. This is here as a warning to me, and it's here as a warning to you, to each of us, so that we, by God's grace through Jesus Christ, might not walk through this life as fools. I hope and pray that's how you are listening to this this morning. 
that your, 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 your pride, the things that you put up so that you don't listen to God's word would give way to his spirit. This chapter describes two inclinations, two directions in life. And you can see them both in verse two. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right. This is, this is my right, your left, but I don't think my brain will let me point that way when I say right. And a fool's heart to the left. And it seems to me that this chapter shows what it looks like to be inclined to the left. Mostly that's what this is about. And then a few words to those who are inclined to the right. The right is what it looks like to be inclined after godliness, after self-forgetfulness, after humility. The right is the path that follows Jesus Christ by faith. The left, and this is where he spends most of the time in this passage, is to be inclined after selfishness and to have a haughty and conceited spirit. And this chapter, I think, is a sweet call from God for us to be people whose hearts are inclined to the right. And my hope is that you will listen for yourself this morning and allow God to expose your sin because that's what he does. And he's really good at it. And tug at your heart in the direction of the right. That he might tug your heart after the path of the Lord Jesus Christ. The preacher Solomon begins this by sharing how destructive folly is. And that's where we'll begin um, lest we think this is a small thing. Okay, so look at verse one again with me. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now, I'm not sure that that image resonates all that well with, with you. It takes a little bit of thinking. It's a little foreign to us, perhaps. But here's what I pictured it as. I, I see the king sitting in his palace, and he opens a new jar of ointment, and he smells it, right? But instead of it smelling like Drakkar, that dates me. I don't know any new colognes, but it smells like Jakar. The stuff stinks. It smells nasty. And he's, he's wondering. He's like, I know this perfumer. This perfumer does good work. He, he knows how to make good perfume, but this stinks bad. And so why is it so off? And then he notices that there are tiny little dead flies in there. Ah, that's why. The rot of those small Nasty flies spoiled the smell of the perfumer's ointment. The perfumer had spent all that time and effort to make his ointment smell pleasant. And then these tiny flies just died there and their rot ruined the work. That's a great picture of the harm that folly does. You see, it does not take a lot of folly to destroy a lot of good. It takes a little folly to destroy a lot of good. A decision made in a moment of weakness, a moment, uh, an impulsive response, a, a rash word spoken at the wrong time, a wrong decision fueled by anger, small dead flies can cause good perfume to stink. A little can destroy a lot. Relationships that take years to build, years to build can be ruined in a moment. Marriages which take years to make strong and healthy can be undermined and destroyed by a few or even by one bad decision. Reputations that take years to build can be destroyed in a day. 
local churches, which take a lot of time and effort and work to make healthy and unified and godly, can fracture and even crumble because of a little folly. Those things, relationships, marriages, reputations, churches, they're big things, right? And they take a while to build, all of them. Just as the perfumer's ointment takes effort and work and time to, f- to finish it and make it smell pleasant. And with a little folly, a tiny dead fly, those things can quickly end up stinking. That's the principle. It doesn't take that much effort or ingenuity or time to tear something precious down. It doesn't take a lot of work. To tear down. Building. Building takes time. Building takes time and patience and strength and discipline. Destroying is easy. It's easy to divide. It's hard to unify. And that way, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to run from folly and run to wisdom. I don't want my words or my decisions or my actions or my reactions to be dead flies. Do you? There are at least four descriptions or four ways dead flies stink up a perfumer's ointment in this passage. Let's just walk through those. Look at verse three. There are a couple of ways to understand the words of that verse, the second part of that verse, but I think the latter part means that the fool thinks Everyone else is a fool. Now, I know the ESV can go both ways. It's like he's walking in the street saying, hey, I'm a fool. But I don't think there's a reflexive sense going on there. Doesn't seem to me to be the grammar working that way. It looks like he's going around saying that everyone, everyone, that every person, every other person is a fool. He is going around saying that everyone else is a fool. That seems to me to be the way that the grammar works. He doesn't have, a, have the sense to consider his own folly because he is hyper-tuned to the folly of others. The, the fool says to everyone that he is a fool. The fool thinks that he is the only one who has wisdom. And when people do not see things the way that he sees them, he says, you're a fool. Of course, he might use some tact in saying that. He might not call everyone a fool, like Mr. T. Remember him? He would go around saying, you're a fool. Anyone get that reference? It was before my time too, so. (laughs) I looked it up. No, I didn't. Friend, if you put so much stock in the way that you see things, he might be describing you. The fool is unteachable, he's unreprovable, he's uncorrectable. He puts the greatest weight on his own thoughts. He does not listen to other people's perspective. He does not consider other people's perspective as serious enough to influence his own. He has an opinion and he believes his opinion, he believes in his opinion alone. I take take this to mean that that disposition, that inclination is not from God. It's not from God. It is from the heart of man, proud, scoffing man. That does not hear above the noise. He does not hear others above the noise of his own opinion. That's so convicting to me and I hope it is to you as well. I don't want to have such a high regard for my own way of thinking and my own opinions that I walk on street lacking sense saying to everyone that he is a fool. What dead flies that would be and how destructive that would be to those around me. 
Oh, how we need God's grace to be humble before him and before others. So that's the first way. Second way dead flies stink up the ointment is the direct harm that they cause to oneself. He uses several images to show this. In verse eight, he says he digs a pit and then he falls into it. Verse nine says he cuts stone and cuts logs and he's hurt by those things. He's hurt by the things that he's cutting. Verse 12 says that his own words consume him. Verse 14 says that he's lost. A couple of references to snakes striking him. Those are all images that convey one truth. Folly does not help the fool, but hurts him. So this is not just about harming others, although I can see harm towards others just laced throughout this. This is also about the harm that folly causes to oneself. And that's the backwardness of this all. A fool is a fool because he thinks that's the best thing for him. The reason we go to folly is because we think that that folly is better for us. The fool is inclined to the left because he thinks it's right that it will be better for him in the end, that he will lose something or miss something if he goes on the other path, the right path. So he thinks it's better for him to be quarrelsome or proud or so on because that will protect him in the end. People will think better of him. He will be better than those around him. So he digs a pit. I presume that means that he digs a pit that he hopes will trap other people and then he falls into it himself. I don't know if you like far side cartoons, Gary Larson, anyone old enough to know what those are? There, there's one far, far side cartoon drawing that came to mind as I was studying this. Um, it's a drawing of two hunters that had just dug a, a deep pit and they covered it with something and a lion had fallen into it. And they're both standing on the edge of this pit celebrating that they had caught a fierce man-eating lion. They're just both excited about it. It's just one picture, you know, but you, everything's implied. That's why these are so funny. One guy's just, yes, we got him. And he slaps the other guy on the back. And the other guy's like, uh, you know, on the edge of the pit. And he starts to lose his balance. And what's implied is he's about to fall in to the pit that he dug. I spent way more time than I should have looking for that to show it to you this morning, but didn't find it. <laughs> he who digs a pit falls into it. He who schemes or uses antics, or responds out of anger, harms himself, not just others. He harms others for sure, but he harms himself with those schemes and those, and that, those antics and that anger. It is not merely harmful to others. It's self-harm. It's actually self-harm. The preacher, Solomon, is putting this out there for you as a warning. You will not be helped by this inclination in your heart away from God and towards the left. you will be harmed. And friends, ultimately, the harm is ultimate. Folly is not the path that leads to heaven. Folly is not the path that leads to faith in Jesus Christ alone. When God's ways become folly to you, when you look at God's word and his ways and you think that's, that's nonsense, it's folly, I'm going to go my own way, that's not the way that leads to life. That is the way that leads to ultimate self-destruction. And that's the very definition of being lost. Look at verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, 
for he does not know the way to the city. He does not know the way. What a picture. The fool is lost and consumed by his own sin. But there's more, more to this warning. The third way dead flies stink up the ointment, the third picture of folly here that I think is worth noting is that the fool doesn't sharpen his own knife. Look at verse 10 again with me. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps him to succeed. I think that speaks to the haughty, the haughty presumption and the lack of seriousness about this life, the lack of seriousness about the task of life The fool doesn't take the time to sharpen the edge of his knife. Sharpen a knife? Pish posh. I don't need to do that. Just let me do my work. Let me handle this. I got this. I don't need instruction. I don't need to sharpen my knife. It's all pish posh. It's not a bad word, by the way. I I saw that in a children's book. In case you haven't heard that. You ever tried to do chores with with a dull tool? You ever try to cut meat with a dull knife. You hack away, you waste time and energy, and the end product is worse for it. In the practical terms, okay, what does this mean? I think it means like that, that, that thought, I don't need the Bible. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to be with other Christians. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be careful about what I watch or what I do or the language I use. I don't have to listen to the word of God being preached. Pish posh, just let me live life. I can handle this. I can handle this. And I call that a haughty presumption because I think it has its roots in the pride of man. The man who does not think he needs to humble himself and prepare for life and be serious about life. And oh, what a mess of things we make, right? And how much life we waste when we approach life like that. Dead flies spoiling precious ointment. All right, so the fool says that everyone else is a fool. The fool harms himself and others by his folly. The fool doesn't sharpen his knife. And then the fourth thing is that the fool doesn't charm the snake in time. You see that in verse 11. It might be challenging to understand that image, but what I think it means is that the fool refuses to do what is appropriate at the appropriate time. The charmer waits so long, right? He's supposed to be Taming that snake, but he waits so long that that snake bites somebody or bites him. The fool was not on his game and somebody got hurt. Maybe he got hurt, maybe somebody else. Last summer, I I think it was last summer, we went through the book of Proverbs together and I gave a definition then of diligence, which is an aspect of wisdom, diligence. I said that diligence is doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. And I think that's what's in view in verse 11, not doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time, perhaps again because of the pride of man that won't be constrained to what is expected or needed in a given moment. And the end result is what? More harm, right? More dead flies, more spoiled ointment. The snake bites. The appropriate thing, for example, just things, a few examples here. Loving your, loving your wife or your husband. 
The appropriate thing is to love and nurture and be patient with your children. The appropriate thing is faithfulness. The appropriate thing is working hard and serving others. The appropriate thing is loving other Christians or striving to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. The appropriate thing is showing compassion to those around you who are hurting. But the fool wants to do his own thing. He's not not interested in charming the snake. He fails to charm the snake and then the snake bites because that's what snakes do. And then it doesn't matter how good of a charmer he was or might have been, someone is still hurt. Now, I want you to see what all of these things have in common. The the portrait that Solomon is painting of a fool, he is a man or a woman or a child that insists on simply doing his own thing. Doing what feels good to him, what feels right, what serves his needs. Maybe he's following his culture. I think there's a a nod to that in this passage, verses five and six. I think it highlights the backwardness of society. And I think it's so on point today. I think right there, you see the crookedness that runs right throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe his eye is on the culture, but the fool, the, the, the point is the fool has no thought of the good of others. His only thought is his own good. He only listens to himself. He only hears himself. He values supremely his own perspective, his own opinion. He is unconcerned with the way that things ought to be or what he ought to do. That's the portrait of folly that Solomon is painting for us. And I see that portrait and my heart cries out, I don't want to be him. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to act like that. I don't want to be that. So, you can see the portrait of folly, and you can also see the progression of folly. A nod to those of you who don't think I alliterate enough. I'm alliterating today. Portrait and progression. Look at verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, the beginning, and the end of his talk is evil madness. There's a progression there, isn't there? Perhaps in the beginning, in the fool's mind, his path, unconcerned about God and others and just doing his own thing, is mere foolishness. But the end is evil madness. There is something corrupting about the spin of our foolish thoughts. When the center of those things is self, you you can just see that in the way that you might think. You see two people talking, you make an assumption based on something you know about them, and then you conclude that it must be about you, and the more you let that spin, you you know what I mean? Do you ever do this? The more you let that spin, the further detached you are from truth. And the end of that is not just foolishness. Like it goes beyond foolishness to evil madness, a much stronger term. Which means the intentional, unjustified, disconnected from reality harm that you intentionally cause or wish to cause towards others. In some counseling circles, they call this progression narcissistic personality disorder. Solomon simply calls it evil madness. This is serious, friends. Do you see that? The description of this inclination to the left, I think, ought to scare us. It frightens me. I don't want to go there. I want to be a man whose heart is inclined to the right. 
towards God and his ways. This passage says more about the inclination of the left because it's a warning, but there are a few wonderful things he says about the inclination to the right to which a wise person's heart is drawn. Look at verse 10, the end of it. It says, wisdom helps one to succeed. That's a, that's a very general way of saying that wisdom is better. Wisdom leads to flourishing. Wisdom leads to flourishing. It leads to success. Going God's way in our lives leads to our good. You will never harm yourself. You will never harm others by following Jesus Christ. Never. I think the devil wants you to think that you will be harmed by following Jesus. You'll miss out or you, you, you won't get something good or, or maybe you'll, you know, by, by owning something you've done, you'll, 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 you'll just wreck your reputation so, so, so terribly that your life will be ruined. You will never wreck your life by following Christ. Never. You'll never harm yourself by following Jesus. Doesn't mean things will be easy, but you will not harm yourself by following Jesus and you will not harm others. Folly, the left, that's the way that leads to a wrecked life. That's what Ecclesiastes 10 teaches us. Wisdom, the right, leads to flourishing. It leads to success. It leads to your good. And wisdom leads to favor. Wisdom leads to flourishing, and wisdom leads to favor. Not to highlight my alliteration this morning, but there it is again. (laughs) Verse 12 says, the words of a wise man, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Again, I, I think this strikes at one of the great ironies of all this. You know why we are fools? <sighs> we want to be liked. We want to be accepted by others. We, want to, we, we often pursue the path of folly to get to the place of pleasing people. I think a lot of foolishness is bound up in our hearts because we desire to please others. We desire to win their approval. We want to be liked. But it is wisdom that gains true favor. The right way to live and talk is what gains true favor. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will like you if you're wise. It's not a promise that if you're wise, you follow God's ways, everyone in the crowd will like and respect you. You might get the opposite response from people. I mean, they crucified the wisest man who ever walked this earth. Many might hate you because of wisdom, but wisdom is the pleasing and helpful and lovely disposition that wins true favor among those who matter and love what is right and what is good. And the way of wisdom also wins favor with God. More importantly, Wisdom, the wisdom of God specifically, is what leads to favor with God. Let me show you how that works out in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, Paul set out to distinguish between the false wisdom of the world and the true wisdom of God. And I want you to see where he goes with this. So I'm, I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, and then I'll skip down to verses 30 through 31. In fact, why don't you turn there if you have your Bibles? We'll display it, but I want you to note this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, listen to this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now skip down to verse 30. Paul continues, and because of him are you you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The ultimate expression of wisdom in the universe is God sending his son to die on the cross for sinners like you and like me. And to rise again to give them hope and the everlasting life. That is the wisdom of God. That is the gospel. And that gospel is the means through which it pleases God to save those who believe. The only way it pleases God to save those who believe. So friend, if you are in Christ, he has become to you the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, You know what that means? That means that if there is any right word inclination in your heart, like if you feel the tug to the right after God's ways, you should pause for a moment and praise God for his grace to you. If you have that inclination, it is owing to God's grace alone in Christ alone through the cross alone. It's because God has shown you grace. You cannot in and of yourself incline your heart to the right. You can't read Ecclesiastes 10 and think, I don't want to be the guy on the left, so I'm going to set my face by my strength to go to the right. You can't do that alone. You've got to go to Christ. He inclines our hearts to himself and his ways. So my friends, that's the whole end of this. Turn to Christ. And I just want you to ask a probing question. I want you to ask yourself this question as we close. I want you to consider the inclination of your heart. Is it to the right? Is it to God's ways? Or is it to the left? And I don't mean anything political by that. Is it to God's ways or is it to you? Is it towards God and his ways through faith and the transformation that comes through the gospel? Is it towards the obedience to Jesus Christ by faith? Or is it to the left away from God, unconcerned about his will for your life, unconcerned about what he demands of this world and of you? As you read this, do you see yourself here? Don't play around with folly. I've done that. I still catch myself doing that. And always, in my experience, it amounts to dead flies in perfumer's ointment. Always. It always leads to stink. But you don't have to take my word for it. Hear the God-inspired word of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. 
Hear it and let what you see in your life, your sin perhaps, lead you to the cross, lead you to Christ and the glorious hope of the gospel. There's hope for fools. There's hope for fools. Aren't you glad? His name is Jesus. He died for fools. He died for me. He died for you. Oh, how I want to follow Christ through faith and hope in him and set my eyes on the glorious wisdom of God in the cross. Oh, how I want to take my eyes off of me and put them onto Jesus Christ. There is life. There is freedom. There is flourishing. There is favor. There's no life in folly. Let us follow the right way, the way of wisdom after our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I I pray for someone who might be here today thinking, I don't need any of this. I don't need any of these words. I don't need any correction. I don't need any adjustment. Lord, I pray for that person today. Oh, Lord, would you break through by your grace and in your mercy. And Lord, for all of us who are fools, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged with the grace that you have shown us in Christ, that you have become our wisdom. You have become to us the wisdom of God and redemption and sanctification. And we stand in you and in you alone. We have no hope outside of the gospel. Not a one of us. We have no hope outside of Christ. I pray that we would leave here clinging to that truth, repenting of our sin and turning to Christ with faith and hope in him. In Jesus' name, amen.